what's your story? We all have threads and stitches that weave throughout the timeline of our life, each contributing new twists and turns, ups and downs, all in an endeavor to create the fabric of your story, the making of you. Who are you? At the very core of your being, sitting here right now, what's your story? I love listening to people's stories. In fact, I remember a long time ago in a land far, far away, someone asked me what my perfect job would be. I pondered it for a moment and then simply responded, reading books and listening to people's stories. It's a little harder these days to do the latter, but I'm no less interested. Our stories, the moments that make up our life and, and how we respond to them, it's it's what makes us who we are. It reminds me of the Brandy Carlisle lyric, all of the lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. There's so many stories of where I've been and how I got to where I am. Can you relate? Because I can. What's your story? A large part of my story is actually embodied in this vase. Life in the church hasn't always been the easiest for me. I've experienced the ups and downs, the twists and turns, moments of unbelievable joy, but also seasons marked by an unbearable amount of pain and betrayal at the hands of people in the church. And on more than one occasion, these were the types of pains and betrayals that cut so deep that I didn't know if I'd be able to recover. I, I thought I might actually be bleed out and be left for dead. It, it was in the wake of the most devastating of experiences holding a newborn in my arms that Tracy and I surveyed the destruction. It had come through betrayals and abandonments on seemingly every front, the shattered pieces of our lives left everywhere on the ground, some seemingly ground into dust by those we loved. We didn't know how to put it back together, let alone where to begin. We just wanted to throw it all away and craft a fresh new vase. Have you ever felt that way? Wishing you could just sweep away the broken shards of glass and get a new cup? It seems so much easier, doesn't it? Kintsugi. Tracy and I learned about this beautiful art form in Japanese culture, thanks to a Death Cab for Cutie album by the same name, Kintsugi. It's this precious art form that cares for the broken and shattered pieces of pottery, carefully and painstakingly putting them back into place, tenderly mending the divides with lacquer and powdered gold, highlighting the cracks and blemishes leaving the wounds and hurts, the pains and betrayals present in the work, making the pottery even more valuable and beautiful than before the brokenness. Kintsugi. Tracy and I worked to pick up our lives piece by piece. And while it didn't all come at once, we slowly began noticing that right there in the midst of it all, God was guiding our hands. God was putting the pieces back into place. God was filling the cracks with his love, his mercy, 
his grace. For we are God's handiwork. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. My, what beautiful battlefields you are. The push and the pull of your story, the twists and the turns, the ups and the downs, the carved lines in your face, the pain behind your eyes. What beautiful battlefields you are. You too are God's handiwork. You too are his greatest masterpiece. You too are being pieced back together, mended with care as he fills the cracks with his love, his grace, his mercy. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You are a child of the King and you, you make God happy. If no one has ever told you that, let me tell you again, you make God happy. You make the Lord smile. Your very existence causes this. Your being here on this earth right now, whether it is, wherever it is that you're listening to this from you, you make the Lord happy. And I know this is the, uh, the difficult and uncomfortable part of the grace that Paul writes about here in Ephesians chapter 2. Th this is the part we wrestle with and the part that every other religion and religious understanding of God stands opposed to. Every religion on this planet and even many Christians stand opposed to the truest reality of grace because it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It, it doesn't make any sense, and it stands opposed to our human sensibilities. This idea that there is nothing you can ever do that would make God love you any less. Nothing. There is nothing you can ever do to make God love you any less. No matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what your story is up to this point, there is nothing absolutely nothing that you can ever do that would make God love you any less. And that's hard. Because there are a lot of people in this world that we love a whole lot less. There are a whole lot of people that are or were in our lives that we've removed our love from. It's easy to pull our love away in order to get people to do our bidding, to conform to our will, but, but that's us. That's not God. There is nothing that you can ever do that will make God love you any less. And that's a strange and difficult reality about the very nature of who God is. But there's another side to this reality as well. There, there is nothing that you will ever do to make God love you any more. Yeah, there is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you anymore. Nothing. You cannot earn God's love. Let me say that again. You cannot earn God's love because it's already there. His love is endless. His love is without bounds. His grace is unfathomable and uncomfortable and ever-present just like he is. And I know 
I know there are some of us out there that grew up in places and spaces that weaponized this grace, that, that turned this beautiful, unbelievable gift into a weapon of pain. God's love was something that had to be earned, something that could be lost. But what about sin, they'd say? What about holiness and right living? What about, what about, what about? This is the story of the gospel that we hear. It's the story of our shame, the story of how we suck. It's no wonder it's so hard for us to believe that God likes us, let alone loves us. We've been told for so long that we have to work our way to grace, and it's not just from other Christians we've learned this. It's quite literally ingrained in every religion on the face of the earth. We we work our way to rightness with God. We work our way to his love because it's the only it's only when we've cleaned up our act enough that that God will notice you. That God will actually see you. Right? No. Enough of that. You see, this is what makes Jesus different. This is what is so scandalous about Jesus. What what tormented the religious establishment of the day? What what turned their heads into knots? This is what is so scandalous about what Jesus said and did. Why he was called the friend of sinners. It's because he proclaimed in word and deed that God's love is permanent and ever-present. This, this is scandalous grace. And I wonder just how different our lives would be if we encountered this Jesus. You see, grace is the only thing, the the one thing that makes Christianity different from everything else. It's what makes Jesus different from everything else. For, For too long, we've been too concerned with negating our uniqueness. We've turned grace into lip service, pushing it away and aside instead of living into it, instead of exploring it, encountering it. You see, grace isn't opposed to effort but it is opposed to earning. You were made for more than earning God's approval. You already have it. And God's love for you is secure. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You are a child of the King, and you make the Lord happy. You make God smile. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, writes Henry Nouwen. This is a fundamental truth of your identity. This is who you are, whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for you during a few years to say, I love you too. This is freedom in Christ. There is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you any less. And there is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you any more. This is revolutionary. And this is what Jesus gave his life to prove to us. God sees you. God sees you for who you are. And he carefully and tenderly, painstakingly and meticulously fills the cracks of your heart and your life with gold. You are a child of the king. He loves you. And he sees you. I believe this with all my heart. I've seen this. 
in my life. God sees you, and he sees you for who you can be. My, what beautiful battlefields you are. This is freedom in Christ. And I don't know about you, but this has been the most revolutionary part of my life. This is a carefreeness, a lightness to my step, a, a great joy and a great hope that has arisen from living into this understanding of experiencing this grace. And because of that, I feel like I can risk it all. I feel like I can take these huge, life-defining, story-making risks. Dr. Cornell West once said, and it's, it's been written in the front of my Bible for years, it's time for us to do some pretty provocative things in the name of love. It's time for us to do some pretty provocative things in the name of love. The church is an incubator of revolutionaries, and the revolution begins with grace. It begins in not only understanding, but living into this new revolutionary reality that God's love isn't going anywhere. Grace is a revolutionary expression of God's undying love for us. We've got to let this sink into our minds. We've got to let this sink deep into our hearts. We've got to get this into our bones. Grace is a revolutionary expression of God's undying love for us. And it's time. It's time for us to do some pretty provocative things in the name of love. It's time for us to risk big and write new stories of God's love and grace in our city and in our neighborhood. It's time. Let us go now in peace, armed with God's revolutionary expression of love. And let us in the name of that love, do the unimaginable.